Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. And today on the show, we begin with a quick roundup of some interesting developments in foreign policy. So, a quick update on a story that we previously featured on our policy roundup. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has recently stepped up his pressure on Arab states to lift their blockade of Qatar. And this comes following the signing of an accord between the U.S. and Qatar on terrorism financing. So... In addition, in in perhaps an attempt to uh, answer the allegations of states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Qatar sought to address allegations that it is involved in terrorist financing by instituting funding freezes and establishing terrorist lists. And this seems to put the U.S. in a really precarious element within the region, and terrorism being one of the U.S.'s main priorities in terms of a security standpoint. But even more than that, you know, it's... I don't know. Is the U.S. involvement here, do you think it will necessarily bring about a, a decent outcome? Do you think getting involved in this sort of diplomatic light will enhance the relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia? Or do you think it, it's just kind of like putting a Band-Aid over this, you know, two brothers kind of situation? I think the U.S. has to do something, uh, again, given its vested interest in maintaining relations and stability in the region, um, you know, it has, you know, a major airfield in Qatar, but it also has a long-standing relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, going back to what you said about, uh, you know, counterterrorism being a priority, it needs to kind of maintain these relationships. But, you know, I don't think it can afford to perhaps pressure one side too much over the other. So, yeah, definitely a bit of a balancing act. It'll be interesting to see how, you know... Um, Qatar reacts to some of these more extreme demands, like shutting down the Al Jazeera Arab television network. So it seems like it's maybe trying to meet uh, states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE halfway uh, with with these new anti-terrorism laws and regulations. But I doubt that we'll see them go all the way and just kind of bow to these demands given their extreme nature. And I'm going to take you a little bit away from the region and go to a spotlight on Venezuela. On July 22nd, the BBC reported that Venezuela's opposition-controlled National Assembly has appointed 33 judges to the Supreme Court, leaving the Maduro government incredibly uneasy. They called this move an attempted power grab. And this comes after over 7 million Venezuelans, both in-state and abroad, voted in an impromptu referendum set up by the opposition party. Amid this political turmoil, citizens continue to struggle for political and financial stability, And they've even had instances of people going over to the border to Colombia, getting involved in less than seen as above water practices, such as either selling selling sex or working in other industries that they don't necessarily have the permit to do so. But given the Bolivar, Venezuela's currency has just basically worth nothing it's impossible to import export i don't know what do you think are the larger ramifications of this well i think beyond just the obvious uh, you know political instability a lot of what is perhaps overshadowed in media is just how desperate i think the average venezuelan or the poor venezuelan might be 
Um, you know, here these people have been struggling for a long time. It's not just recent, but just to feed themselves. And like you said, a lot of them are turning, you know, to desperate practices or precarious work just to really get by. And here we have this constant squabbling, this, this, this political impasse that uh, doesn't seem to have any quick resolution in sight. I agree. I think a lot of this story and this situation just shows that it's almost a disconnect, right? If people really can't survive day to day and their livelihoods are pretty much shot and they're not guaranteed rights, access and protections in other countries, it's it seems very tertiary that the government's squabbling over rewriting the constitution and these very higher level programs and yet the currency can't buy you anything on the market. So I, I guess we'll just have to sit back and see and if the international community comes to any sort of resolution over this. We'll have to hope for the best uh, because certainly it seems, you know, uh, just in the day-to-day discussions and narrative, Venezuela does get forgotten or at the very least kind of glossed over as to how, as to how serious things really are. Um, so shifting our attention now to Asia... Tensions rise in China and India following renewed disagreement over a contentious border region in the Himalayas. And this region borders China, India, and Bhutan. Uh, China's infrastructure development on the Doklam Plateau, a region claimed by both China and Bhutan, has led to a standoff between Indian and Chinese forces along the border. So India, as Bhutan's ally, has sought to defend against what it perceives to be expansionist aggression by China. And in response, the Chinese have accused India of invading territory it claims as its own. So this is a long-standing dispute, but I think it's been a long time since we've seen, you know, such fiery rhetoric and the actual buildup of troops or, you know, large-scale military exercises on the border as each seems totally unwilling to back down to this latest sort of challenge. And Bhutan has had a lot of internal instability between factions, and I feel like this is playing out between two countries what has been going on in the country for a long time and each country backing a different political party but it it doesn't do much to provide stability there have been hundreds of thousands of Bhutanese refugees scattered all over the world in Nepal or in India and I guess I I can't see that this will help this issue from not being protracted further. No, it kind of seems like a smaller power caught, you know, in the geopolitical ambitions of its great power neighbors. And uh, one thing that I read, actually, which is quite interesting, is perhaps it's important to view uh, China's actions, China's, you know, aggressive rhetoric in light of domestic politics. So here we are in the run-up to the 19th Communist Party Congress, and it's likely that uh, Xi Jinping will want to cement his power and influence Um, leading up to that uh, event. So framing the issue as China defending itself against an outside threat could serve to stoke nationalist sentiment and bolster support for his leadership. And with that, I think we'll jump into our main topic for today. And taking a closer look at the decline of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, otherwise known as ISIS. ISIS has been gradually losing the territory it captured from the Middle Eastern states, with the most recent loss being the capture of the Iraqi city of Mosul by the Iraqi armed forces after a nine-month campaign that has left decimated infrastructure and high levels of reported civilian casualties. 
along with a lot of internally displaced persons. And ISIS is also believed to be on the verge of losing the Syrian city of Raqqa, especially notable due to the fact that it serves as its capital. So to add to the group's latest woes, uh, reports also indicate that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the uh, self-proclaimed caliph of the Islamic State's caliphate, uh, may have been killed by an American airstrike near Raqqa, which, if true, would be a major blow to ISIS. Um, however, it should be noted and stressed that al-Baghdadi has been reported dead on several prior occasions. So right at this point, it's really unclear whether he's still alive or not. And I don't think we'll get confirmation, you know, at anytime soon. And it seems like this territorial shift has led to a lot more questions than answers even now. Despite ISIS suffering losses, there are still serious problems to contend with, as the residents of Mosul are left with very little support as they try to rebuild their livelihoods and neighborhoods. And just because Mosul has been liberated does not mean it's secure. The city is still working to make itself secure against individual holdouts within its borders. And the decline in ISIS's strength does not necessarily mean a reduction in terrorist attacks abroad, especially in the cases where attacks were inspired rather than carried out by ISIS. So what exactly can we expect in the aftermath of the potential ISIS decline? To help us break down and really understand this issue, we have Barak Barfi, who is joining us all the way from Turkey. So Mr. Barfi is a research fellow at the New America Foundation, where he specializes in Arab and Islamic affairs. And he's also a former visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. So his articles have appeared in a wide range of publications, like the Washington Post, the International Herald Tribune, Foreign Policy, Daily Beast, The Atlantic, and he has been quoted by other media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal and Time. So Barack frequently testifies before Congress on issues ranging from Al-Qaeda to the Syrian conflict. And before entering the think tank world, Barack worked as a correspondent for Associated Press and as a producer for ABC News affiliates, where he reported from countries such as Iraq and Lebanon. And now we're going to jump into my conversation with Barack Barfi. So given ISIS's recent losses in Iraq, do you think that ISIS is on the decline? Well, it's clearly uh, not as strong as it was in 2014, 2015. But that said, it, it's it's not going to disappear tomorrow, even though it's pretty much lost all of Mosul and it's starting to lose uh, Raqqa. It still controls a large parts of Syria and Iraq, specifically the under unpopulated areas, which are very hard to get to logistically and not strategically important. So the... A lot of the people in the fight don't have an incentive to continue fighting ISIS and taking the battle to its strongholds. Do you think that given this, the kind of, um, the importance that's been given to strategic strongholds such as Mosul and other takeaways has put the initiative at an advantage, at a disadvantage? Are we just hearing this to that extent because of kind of a rally around the flag effect among countries in these areas to give a little bit of boost in morale? Well, certainly anytime you can say that uh, you've defeated ISIS in, in, a, in a certain strategic area, you're going to get a lot of publicity, you're going to get a lot of support and accolades from the international community. So it's in these forces and these countries' interest to play up their, their gains against ISIS. What do you think are little-known territorial or places of territorial importance in 
the fight against ISIS that are not really catching headlines or they're not quite as prolific as Mosul or Raqqa or other things we've been hearing in the news? I think Deir Azur is the next big place we're going to hear about it. We've, we've heard a little bit about it in the news. Uh, most of the uh, uh, ISIS leadership, foreign leadership, has left Raqqa and moved south to Mayadeen, which is, I think, about 10, 15 miles north of Deir Azur. Deir Azur is um, a large, I think it's the largest city it, it, it still occupies after uh, Raqqa. It's a, it's a geographically remote city near the Iraqi-Syrian border, and ISIS is fighting the regime, the Syrian government there, and it's doing pretty well. I mean, the government is, is backed by uh, Russian airstrikes and, and Iranian Shi'i-backed militias, and it, it just simply can't dislodge ISIS from the uh, eastern part of the city. And speaking of leadership... Has the loss of key leadership figures in recent months crippled ISIS, or should the group be viewed as more capable of functioning without a formal leadership structure? I don't think that, that that's the right way we should phrase the question. I think the question is, has ISIS made the proper preparations if their um, senior leadership is decapitated? And from what I understand within the organization, they've already made preparations to to deputize other leaders in case of uh, the senior leadership's death. So they have a day after plan. Okay. So what do recent territorial losses mean for ambitions to establish a global caliphate? Well, I think we, we've seen that it's a complete farce that ISIS can't create a, a global <laughs> caliphate. It can't retain uh, lands uh, that it controls once the international community gets involved. Certainly, I mean, the United States isn't even involved on the ground. It's using proxies. Uh, if the United States forces were fighting there, the, the, the battle would have been over a, a lot quicker. Um, so I, I just don't think that the uh, caliphate is viable at this time. I mean, the, 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 these, the, the ISIS just it doesn't have an air force. It doesn't have proper military uh, training. It's a guerrilla insurgent uh, group, and that's all it could it can ever be. Then, how would these apparent setbacks for ISIS affect the security situation in the larger Middle East and the rest of the world? So, if you were to take a either a region centric approach that you see are going to be the next steps or the next places of contention. And how might that affect what's going on, let's say, in Europe? Well, I mean, we see that uh, ISIS has uh, affiliates th uh, throughout the larger Islamic world. The, the, the strongest ones are in uh, Sinai in Egypt and uh, Libya. Uh, Sinai is a, a geographically remote, uh, societal, societally remote uh, area. It's on the fringes of, of society. It, the the Bedouin there are alienated. They they haven't gotten the proper uh, investment and in, that the other parts of the country have had. So they're alienated, and it's fertile ground for for ISIS there. And the military just hasn't done a really good job of of, of fighting ISIS. It, it it uses too much uh, heavy artillery and armor, not as much lightning strikes. Uh, it doesn't capture. Uh, ISIS members to glean intelligence, a lot of collateral damage in, in which civilians die. So it's making a, an environment that's conducive for the growth of ISIS. So we're going to see uh, the ISIS affiliate, the Sinai uh, province, 
uh, continue and, 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 and prosper. In Libya, we saw the group have a setback in CERT when it controlled the border there, even though the country is in complete chaos and really essentially has three governments. Mm -hmm. uh, it was pushed out of there and into the desert area, and I'm, I, I'm confident that it will continue uh, to grow in those areas, which are, are, are again, just like in, in Sinai, geographically remote, peripheral in society, uh, not very important. So we'll, we'll see uh, those two areas um, continue to, 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 to thrive. Also in Afghanistan, we're seeing uh, inroads that ISIS is making uh, at the expense of the Taliban. So uh, those are uh, several areas where uh, we should see them active. Also, perhaps in Somalia, in the Philippines, uh, there are uh, opportunities for them to advance. Now, a lot of military critics would say, for example, in the Sinai, that it's a lack of a lack of the military's willingness to consider development initiatives and certain humanitarian assistance projects that would change hearts and minds. Do you think that's true, or do you think it's a bit deeper and more complex than that? I don't think it's the military responsibility. I think that's the civilian government's responsibility. The military doesn't go around, you know, uh, building bridges or whatnot. That's why in the United States we've seen uh, many of the military people saying that they don't want the aid cutbacks that President Trump has um, has proposed. Countries like Egypt were, were well aware of the deficiencies of the government and the liabilities of the government. They just don't have those technical, that type of technical capacity. Uh, the government has never been very prosperous. It, it's never uh, re dealt with uh, civilian uh, gr grievances against the government. Uh, so I'm very uh, pessimistic that all of a sudden today they'll be able to turn around and really understand that the problems that they're, they're, the society faces and offer uh, better solutions to them. And seeing that there is a lack of durable solutions within these states for just average citizens to be able to go to work or go to school and carry on with everyday life as it used to be, do you see that a lack of durable solutions in Europe as well as contributing to this issue that people wouldn't even necessarily try to leave in a failed state situation because the process has been so dangerous and so arduous and at risk of just being kicked out again or not being accepted in everything we see in the news. Do you see that playing out into the hand of radicalization or do you think that that narrative is overplayed? No, I think that um, uh, most. Of, I think that a lot of Arabs and Muslims would would jump at the opportunity to get to Europe, for the the economic prospects that it offers. They, they all know that these societies are prosperous. They all know that there's jobs there, uh, that they do not have in their own society. Uh, there's uh, fr there, there may there, there's frictional unemployment uh, everywhere, but but in, in these societies. They just can't get any jobs. I mean, even the menial jobs that they want, they can't get. They can become day laborers. So they're always looking for better opportunities to uh, increase their, their abilities and potentials. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com.
Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria has used the existence of ISIS throughout the Syrian civil war to brand opposition forces as terrorists in order to discourage support for them. Recently, though, ISIS has been losing strength in Syria. How would this influence the Syrian civil war, and would the Assad regime be forced to change its tactics or narrative regarding opposition forces? I think that uh, once the um, Syrian de democratic forces, which are backed by the United States, are able to defeat ISIS in Raqqa and take the city and then move down towards Deir Zor, there'll be great pressure on the regime to show that, that it's been able to, to, to successively fight and defeat ISIS, because until now, it really has not gained much land against ISIS. Um, since 2014, 2015, when it's it, the amount of land mass it had peaked. Whereas if you look at the, 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 S, the Syrian Democratic Forces in, in, in Syria and then the Iraqi military and the Peshmerga in, in Iraq, they've been very, very successful in rolling back ISIS and taking lots of their land. So the question is going to be, why should we support the regime narrative that uh, it's the only one that can beat ISIS and the jihadists when it has never been able to do that. It's really going to show their narrative to be false because they're not interested in fighting the jihadists. It, it's, it's in their interest that the jihadists exist so they can use them as a foil uh, to the international community to play up their importance. So given that, do you think the U.S.'s particular support of police and security forces in Iraq, and more specifically that the initiative is to bolster Iraq's security forces enough internally that they can regain more territory on their own with less U.S. involvement. Do you think that strategy is ill-timed, that it's not quite at the point where the U.S. can do that? Or do you think Iraqi forces in their own right have made solid ground? We know that the most efficient Iraqi forces are the counterterrorism forces, the CTF. Uh, we've done a lot. The government, done, the U.S. has done a lot of studies uh, illustrating that uh, the 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 larger Iraqi military, the regular units, aren't as strong. But they've they've had training. That said, some of the most successful units in the battle against ISIS are the popular mobilization units, the PMUs, which are Shi paramilitary organizations. Uh, supported by Iran, uh, they are they control parts of Mosul. They're they're moving to to Sinjar. Uh, to, they're trying to create a corridor on on, on uh, the Iraqi Syrian border. So we don't see that the the Iraqi forces are up to task as much as we'd like them to be. There's a lot left to be uh, demanded. Speaking of Iran and other regional players, I think it's interesting to see how Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, as well as Iran and other regional players, have had their hand both in Syria and Iraq. Do you think that recent political events where, you know, you have Qatar and Saudi Arabia in this big spat over trade and, you know, the use of funds for terrorist activity, or as alleged, do you think that those squabbles are going to have an effect on the region and the support of different actors? 
Well, the, 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 the tiff between the Saudis and, and the, the Emiratis and the Qataris uh, certainly plays to Iran in the short run because uh, once the Saudis closed the border with the Qataris, uh, they, 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 they weren't able to import any more food stuff. So the, the Iranians stepped up and offered to provide their own uh, food stuff to, uh, to Qatar. Uh, but that said, um, the, the, the Iranians are, are certainly seen as, as, as an adversary or even an enemy by the Sunni Arab states, and they're trying to find a way to, to undermine it. Um, you know, Barack Obama told Jeffrey Goldberg, the Atlantic, that the, 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 the Sunnis and the Shia, the Saudis and the Iranians are going to have to learn to live together because they live in the same neighborhood, which was which, which, which a shock to the Saudis. However, President Trump is, is thinking is much more in line with the Saudis. And if the Iranians pose any threat to the Saudis, direct threat, uh, you can be assured that the, the, the Americans would step up to support uh, the, the Saudis. So I think maybe it's possible that under this American administration, the, the Iranians have overstepped what the, the bounds of what's acceptable. And we'll see some type of American uh, response to that in the coming years. Because a lot of Syria, a lot of forces in Syria are backed with the support of different countries. Do you see these fights between Qatar, the Emiratis, and the Saudis being affected on those groups and the resources that they have? Well, we've seen it already because, uh, from what I'm told by groups that receive Qatari funding, the Qataris cut off funding almost immediately after the Saudi, the Saudis and Emiratis acted. So that we were seeing uh, cause and effect almost immediate, which which uh, which which affects these these rebel groups and their ability to fight the regime. Not only the regime, but but uh, the extremists, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, the former Al Qaeda affiliate, has been strengthened in the province of Idlib, where most of the rebels are located. So what would the decline of ISIS mean for Western states? And do you expect to see Western involvement in the region for several years to come, if only to prevent the sort of power vacuum that helps spawn ISIS? Well, I, I don't think just because ISIS is kicked out of Mosul or Raqqa, the, 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 there's a reduction in any threat that poses to the West. On the contrary, I think the, 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 the threat it poses increases. Why? Because it no longer has a state, and it, it and it diffuses its fighters out of the caliphate. So where do the foreigners go? The foreign fighters go. They'll try to go back home, or they'll tr they'll try to smuggle in other fighters to continue uh, uh, to continue the fight against the, the infidels, which is what jihadists did uh, before 9/11 and through uh, the the Iraq War. And up until there was a caliphate, and even when during the caliphate, they smuggled fighters into uh, Europe uh, to to carry out terrorist attacks. So I think we'll see, well, there's a possibility that we'll see more of these attacks in the coming years. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us from Istanbul and providing us with your perspective. Okay, no problem. We appreciate it. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, concerns, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. And a quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together, Mark Hyken, Samran Roy, Nicole Halsas, 
our editor Megan Bojali and producer Jotsna Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.